Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The 1994 general election of South Africa was the first multiracial democratic election that resulted in victory for millions of black South Africans who, under a system of apartheid, were deprived of the most basic human rights and privileges. Over a three-day period, 22 million voters lined up at polling booths. Beth Houston recalls her experience as a volunteer election observer stationed at a local black high school. She also provides an insight into what life was like and how this moment in time would heal and transform a nation. Mum and Dad were looking for a better life for themselves and for their family. And, you know, life in Britain wasn't brilliant at that time in the 70s. So they went to South Africa at a time when there was quite a lot of white flight from the country. So lots of people were actually leaving when they were arriving. The Houstons were looking forward to a new life, but were unaware of the severity of apartheid, a system which by 1983 would see the forced removal of 3.5 million people from their homes into designated areas, or independent homelands, as they were called. Our policy is one which is called by an Afrikaans word, apartheid. From 1958 to 1966, Prime Minister Hendrik Verford enforced the implementation of separate development and the concept of a partners. And I'm afraid that has been misunderstood so often. It could just as easily, and perhaps much better, be described as a policy of good neighbourliness, accepting that there are differences between people. And while these differences exist, and you have to acknowledge them, at the same time, you can live together, aid one another, but that it can best be done when you act as good neighbours always do. Under Furford's White Republic, good neighbourliness translated into a heavy-handed system of highly segregated living. This limited blacks and those of coloured skin, namely Asian and those of mixed-race heritage, from having access to public facilities, medical care and education. Blacks were no longer considered citizens of South Africa, but were viewed as foreign migrant labourers on temporary work permits. Required to carry identification passes, they were not permitted to enter the city unless they were employed there. The idea behind um, apartheid and the justification for it um, by those that you know came up with the idea wasn't that anyone was superior to anybody else, but that we should live separate lives. And so everything was predicated on that. And the townships were places where black people lived and the towns were places where white people lived. Despite the circumstances, Beth's parents settled in Rustenburg and later the Orange Free State, where Beth's father worked as a mining engineer and her mother eventually returned to work as a nurse, leaving two small children under the care of a nanny. Our first nanny when I was growing up was a woman called Magdalene. I had a very close relationship with her and, you know, I do still feel 
that, you know, she provided a lot of nurturing to my brother and I. And so she was with us, you know, all day, every day until mum came home from work. Um, and in some ways she was like a second mother to us. She lived in a township uh, probably about an hour's drive on a bus away from where we lived. And she came in very early in the morning every every day, along with, you know, probably thousands of other black women. Um, because that was kind of the idea of townships. They were there to serve the white communities. And adhering to their own sense of fairness, they paid their domestic helpers a fair wage and also put themselves at risk by entering the township after curfew in order to return Magdalene to her home at the end of a long day. A lot of those years, the 70s and 80s, because of the upheaval in the township, there were often curfews, so no one was allowed in or out. But mum and dad were, I think on a very personal level, kind to Magdalene. You know, they were, f they were friends in many ways, and they didn't want to see her having to take unreliable public transport late at night to get back to a place that was often very unsafe. So going into the townships was also not allowed in some um, circumstances during curfews and very much frowned upon all of the time. The other domestic help that we would have at home is that often Dad would bring home five or six guys that he would work with to help him do something in the garden, you know, if he needed to do a big clear out or build something in the garden. And then Dad would take them all back to the township at the end of the day as well. And I remember him taking me, actually, and you know, I would have been younger than nine, um, being struck by how different it was to the life that we led. I remember being struck by the dust and by lots of children playing in the streets who would stop and stare because they, their lives were in the township. So even though I lived only you know, down the road from them, I was an unfamiliar face. I definitely felt a boundary. Um, I remember thinking for a lot of my childhood, why did those boundaries exist? You know, who, who decided that could be there? People who were close to us, like Magdalene and later domestic helpers, they would sometimes have to bring their children for whatever reason, you know, if ch their own childcare fell apart or whatever. And I remember playing with them, but there being such an unfamiliarity between us, even as children especially in the beginning when we first met, and sometimes a fear from them towards us. Many of those African communities are still very superstitious of white faces. This superstition and fear derived from a system of institutional racism which would often trigger violent outbreaks due to racial tension and inequality. Beth's witnessing of violence came via participation in anti-apartheid protests, especially leading up to the 1994 general election. I was at a peace rally. I was there as an observer also. There was a big scuffle with somebody who, you know, a couple of guys that had knives and quite close to me, and I remember kind of jumping over um, and trying to get away from it. I think there was a lot of fear in the community about radical change. I think there was a lot of fear about affirmative action. Um, people were worried that they would lose their position in society, and, and kind of rightly so, you know. They were fearful for their families. There had been a lot of violence in the run-up to the election in South Africa. The violence was often 
in the townships, you know. As white middle-class folk, we weren't necessarily exposed to it very much. But we knew it was happening, and there were many skirmishes, especially amongst, um, you know, it was pitched to us as tribal warfare. So uh, amongst Zulu and Kosa, we knew it was happening because it was reported there were some very prominent political figures killed. Even as late as 1993, Chris Harney was killed. We knew there was a lot of violence going on and people were frightened of that and I don't judge them for those feelings because I was involved on the left of politics. Um, I didn't believe what people were saying about that fear but certainly there was a lot of uh, anger from some sectors of the white community that this was happening. Some pretty terrible beliefs about black people that they didn't believe they were equal and that they should have the vote. Lots of people were frightened of what was going to happen. Beth's interest and involvement in politics led her to participate as a volunteer at a polling booth during the most significant event in South African history. The South African general election in 1994 allowed citizens of all races to cast their vote for the first time in more than 300 years. Well, in 1994, I was doing my honours in politics at Rhodes University in Grahamstown in South Africa, and we had a very wise head of department who understood what an amazing event this was in the world. And he, for that component of our coursework, encouraged all of us to become active in whatever way we could in the election. So we did a lot of things, and one of the things we did was sign up to be election volunteers. And he put us in touch with um, a lot of the organisations. Even though I was very young, I did have a sense that everything that had gone before in the 400 years of South Africa's colonial history was moving towards this point. I guess it was just so jubilant and because we'd had time to prepare for that election, you know, from 1989 when the then-president announced um, the dismantling of apartheid entirely and the fact that there would be a, an election for everyone, we had time to prepare um, for this momentous occasion. In the time that I had been in Grahamstown, I had been active in lots of different kinds of political organisations and NGOs, so I had been in the township, but it, it was kind of the first time where I had worked in a situation where perhaps we were, you know, a, a small minority of white faces. It was in the the major township in Grahamstown, Heaney. It would have been at the biggest black high school in the township. I think there were a number of um, schools, but this was a really big high school. I remember arriving very early in the morning. It was already starting to turn cold. There were already people waiting for the doors to open. But that was nothing in comparison to the queues that built up over the day and over the, the um, subsequent days. They just felt like there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people waiting to vote. There's one story that really sticks in my mind of an elderly woman who turned up at the um, polling station and sat um, because she brought her own white plastic deck chair. And she was that old that she needed to sit down so she would get up walk the few steps when the queue moved and then sit down again. And 
the polling place manager went out um, to have a look at the crowd and let people know how fast it was moving and that kind of thing. And she saw this lady and went up to her and said, you know, I'm really sorry that you're having to wait so long. And she said, I've been waiting all my life, dear. I think I can wait a little longer. And you heard stories like that all the time, you know, people just um, being so patient because it was such a jubilant time. It is very exciting. We are so excited, really. We can continue ourselves. Anything can happen to me after this, I don't mind. As long as I've cast my vote. This day, it's a very big day for us. The result of the election where millions of people voted saw an outcome that would change the face of South Africa. Led by Nelson Mandela, the African National Congress won a sweeping 62% of the vote which would transform the nation and free its people from more than three centuries of repression. This is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. This is your victory too, your help and apartheid. You stood with us through the transition. I watched along with you all as the tens of thousands of our people stood patiently in long queues for many hours, some sleeping on the open ground overnight, waiting to cast this momentous vote. South Africa's heroes are legend across the generations. But it is you, the people, who are our true heroes. This is one of the most important moments in the life of our country. I stand before you filled with deep pride and joy. Like those around her, Beth was exhilarated by the results and hopeful for the future. I guess it was just, you know, a feeling of jubilation for me. And also a sense of the right thing had happened, a triumph of good over evil. I had played a tiny, tiny part in that, such a minuscule part, but that it was the most wonderful outcome. I was a fan of uh, the anti-apartheid movement and the ANC, and I was hoping for their victory. <laughs> There had been so much pain and suffering in South Africa, which is almost hard to fathom. And, you know, it feels like another planet now. You know, 20 years have passed and it's hard to imagine what went on. But so much pain and suffering, people disappearing, people being killed, economic inequality people not being educated, people being um, stripped of their culture. And that ended. There was this symbolic moment in the election where people could say, that's finished now. And then after that, we could have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission where Bishop Tutu famously said nobody held the monopoly on truth. So people could say, this is what happened here, this is what happened to my family, and mums could find out what happened to their sons, you know, who had just disappeared because of their anti-apartheid activity. That was an amazing thing.
But in that moment, when people voted, it was in some ways such a huge act of defiance against that evil on a personal level for every single person who did it. So for me, I just felt in those moments, in those tiny, you know, millions of moments where people just said, I'm casting my vote even though I haven't been able to. You know, that woman who was very elderly, never having been able to exercise her right to franchise. It was an incredible time. Living through apartheid and experiencing the transformation of a nation was something that Beth will continue to carry with her. It didn't seem to take very long after the election in 1994 for people to be convinced that it was a good idea. I still think most people would say that it was worse then, that the election was a good idea, that democracy for all was a good idea. Yeah, now things have changed so much in South Africa it's taught me to always check my privilege. I benefited from apartheid, whether I like that or not. There's lots of shame in that for me, but I'm okay with it now. I didn't choose it, but my family benefited from it. Whenever I can, I try to ensure that I understand that I've come from that privilege, and I still have privilege. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So... Talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 